Welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most mind-boggling homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now for this season, season seven, the focus is on murder cases where the uh, murderer pled, they pled not guilty by reason of insanity or not mentally competent to stand trial because of a long history of documented mental illness. And when I say mental illness, I don't mean that the killer or murderer, they just had a form of um, you know, some type of rage where they just zapped out one day, you know, and they just got mad and snapped one day. Nope. For the most part, these killers were, they were like severely mentally deranged. They had histories of well-documented mental illness, and they had at least one stay in a mental institution and showed clear signs that somehow... They were allowed to live in society, you know, and function with, uh, you know, n normal people, I should say. But when they showed clear signs that that they probably, you know, I'm not going to lie, they should have been committed a long time ago. Now, mostly all of the murderers for this season have been sentenced indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins, which is the only maximum security mental institution that we have for the criminally insane in this state. We do have some other ones, but for like a maximum security facility, the majority of patients go into uh, Perkins. Um, and it's very, li very likely that they will never be released back into society because their murderers were so bizarre so outlandish, so brutal, so pointless that they cannot possibly be uh, allowed back into society. And the murderer that I'm going to profile for this episode is the mentally ill murderer, 21-year-old Alexander Kimanthi Kenua. I hope I got that right. And just like in all of the other episodes that are in this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because basically not a lot, if anything at all, is going on with the case. You know, some time has passed and nothing is basically being done. And last season, because I profiled 10 unsolved homicides where the victims were female, it's only right that I pay the same amount of attention to the men. So for this season, all of the unsolved homicides that will be profiled, the victims will be males. And for this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 22-year-old Daniel Hole Coverson's. Now, as I said in the last episode, for this season, I have profiled a lot of weird, unusual, and strange homicide cases 
for murderers that have been committed by people um, who have been determined to be mentally ill or suffering from mental illness. Some of the murder cases have been extremely outlandish, extremely weird, like uh, what I profiled for episode number four, where a mother and her roommate basically performed a homemade exorcism on her kids because she thought her kids were possessed by demons. I mean, that was one crazy, I mean, no pun intended, but this next case I'm going to discuss, this one tops even that one. I'm not even going to lie. And when I heard about it, I was completely floored, especially when, just like the case I discussed, you know, earlier, the exorcism, they were black. And when I learned that this dude was black, I'm not going to lie, I was shocked. And the reason why I say that before, you know, before y'all start losing your minds and say, you know, this is a whole racial thing and all that, it's because most cannibal killers are usually white. I mean, best is facts. That's just facts. That's not most cannibal killers. The research shows, statistics shows and everything that that's usually done by, you know, whites. And like white people. That's just, that's just facts. It's not me. But this mentally ill cannibal killer was black. Seriously. And he was from Baltimore. Well, Baltimore City. Or, well, he lived in, you know, Baltimore. So, but let's go to Morgan State University for a minute because that's where this case actually begins. All right. Although Alexander Kenua was born in Kenya as like a young kid, Alexander's family, he came to the United States where his family made education a huge and top priority. That was like something that was really big in their family. They thought it was an opportunity, you know, to come to the United States to get a better life. His parents wanted the best for him. And Alexander became a United States citizen. And he did what his parents wanted him to do, which was graduate high school and move on to college, pursue excellence. Alexander enrolled into uh, Morgan State University, where his father was a college professor there. And Alexander chose electrical engineering as his major, which is honestly not an easy degree to get. Anyway, Alexander did his best to blend in with the college scene at Morgan State University by joining various organizations um, and the Reserve Officers Training Corporation, or basically what is commonly known as the ROTC program. And he did this in January of 2012. But after Alexander got kicked out of the ROTC program because he zapped out and destroyed school property, the people that he used to hang around, they later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that they noticed a drastic change in Alexander's personality. They noticed that Alexander's words and some of the posts and stuff that he would post on Facebook, it started getting weird. And he started posting outlandish stuff where he talked about conducting human sacrifices that was going to be held during an event on campus at Morgan State. Now, he posted stuff like on his Facebook page. He posted stuff, weird stuff, like 
<laughs> hear me out, bitches. Are you strong enough to endure ritual HBCU mass human sacrifices around the country and still be able to function as human beings? It's been all too tragic with the dual university shooting at Virginia Tech and other past university killings across the country. Now for a twist, ethnic cleansing, cleansing is the policy's strategy and tax, tax, tactics that will affect you directly or indirectly in the coming months. This is the brutal basis and evil and terrifying method of this death cults. Now, if somebody posts a Facebook, I mean, seriously, like, what does that even mean? Like I said, like signs and stuff like this. Um, Alexander started carrying a machete and started wearing all this like face paint and stuff on his face. Like he was part of some African tribe in a school during like, you know, school hours, like weird stuff. In May of 2012, two days after he made that, you know, weird ass post on Facebook and, and an instructor at Morgan had warned other people that Alexander was a Virginia Tech waiting to happen. Um, and if you don't know what Virginia Tech is, that was um, a mass shooter that came, you know, shot up to school. Um, and I forget the number of victims that uh, this particular killed, but basically <laughs> it's so common now that an instructor was comparing Alexander to one of these school shooters. So, uh, he started showing 21 year old Alexander started showing even more, more signs. Um, he made, he had managed to make a few friends at Morgan state university and one particular friend that he had, um, they were close. They, they spent a lot of time together. They worked out together, you know, lifting weights and stuff like that, playing video games or whatever, you know, college, um, guys do. And at one point, Alexander considered him to be a close friend. But as Alexander's mental illness got worse and worse, Alexander, in his delusional mind, he thought that his friend was planning on going to the police about something that he had done earlier in the year. And in retaliation for that, Alexander suddenly attacked his friend with a baseball bat that he had wrapped up in chains and barbed wire. Wow, I mean, he tried to kill him. So Alexander beat his friend so bad that he gave his friend a fractured shoulder, a fractured arm, and skull fracture that left him blind in one eye. That's some friend. Because of this attack on a fellow student, Alexander was kicked out of, kicked out of Morgan, arrested, and charged with assaulting a student with a baseball bat. After Alexander was arrested, his family went into crisis mode and Alexander's mother decided to go to the public for financial help and she posted on her, her Facebook page, Our son, Alexander Kimanthi Kenua, was arrested on Saturday, May 19th, 2012 for being involved in a fight, a fight, in his dormitory room at MSU. The charge against him is first-degree assault and excessive endangerment of life. His bail has been set for U.S. $220,000. In order to get him the best defense possible, 
we need to secure an attorney who will take his case and leave no stone unturned. So that's one. That's what she posted on her Facebook page. So after Alexander's family held a fundraiser to raise money for Alexander at um, a community church in Northeast Baltimore, Alexander was able to post bail and he was released from jail. But maybe he should have stayed locked up. I mean, he he hit one of his friends with a baseball bat that was covered in barbed wire and chains. I mean, some of y'all family members seriously be enabling, but I mean, that didn't scale. But anyway, maybe he should have stayed locked up because with Alexander not going to school or, you know, the church no more, you know, with nothing to do. I mean, who knows what triggered all of this, but Alexander rapidly and quickly just got even sicker and just descended even deeper and deeper into mental illness. And according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, Alexander started spending his days as a spiritual medium. And he thought that he was some sort of spiritual prophet who had secret powers. And he started referring to himself as a shaman. Now, all right, pause for a minute. Family. Like, again, y'all didn't see no signs of mental illness in this now. Y'all didn't see no mental illness in this, this man. Like, y'all didn't think to get him help or anything. Y'all couldn't tell that something was off. Especially when they all of a sudden start speaking stuff like this and you know it's not an act. Now, speaking of, you know, family and, you know, home and help and stuff like that. Back at home, at Alexander's parents' house... His parents had allowed another Morgan State University uh, foreign exchange student to stay with them for several months at their home. 37-year-old, I'm going to try my best to get this name right, 37-year-old Kujo Bonsofo Agio Cody, so I'm just going to say Kujo Cody, was also from Ghana. And he had been going through some legal issues when in 2009, Kujo was convicted of harassment after another student, a female student at Morgan University, she told the police that Kujo had been harassing her. Now, you know, when somebody comes from another country and they come to the United States, even if they are over here trying to pursue higher education and stuff like that, you best be on your best behavior. And sometimes y'all can't do what y'all do in other countries over here especially with our females so because of this incident and you know the woman accusing him of harassment he got into some trouble and Cujo's student visa had been revoked and in March of 2010 an immigration judge had ordered Cujo to be deported back to Ghana now Cujo's goal was to become educated at the highest level possible meaning multiple degrees, master's degrees, and stuff like that. And he was well on his way to becoming, doing just that at 37. Kujo already had multiple degrees from his hometown of Ghana. And after he received his degree in the United States, Kujo wanted to go back to his hometown and help take care of his family. But because of Kujo's upcoming deportation, he was upset about that because 
he had to go back to his hometown without getting his degree, which was his original goal in the first place. He got sidetracked by some females. But in the meantime, Cujo had been staying with Alexander's family, which consisted of Alexander, his younger brother, and their parents. Cujo was getting himself together. He was waiting to be deported back home, which he wasn't too happy about. And on the morning of May 25th, 2012, just six days after Alexander had been arrested for beating his friend with the baseball bat, Cujo left the house around 5.30 in the morning in the 500 block of Terrapin Circle in Harford County, and he went for a jog to try to clear his mind. And when he did that, it was the last time that anyone seen him alive. Later, when Cujo never came back from his run, Alexander's father felt that something was off. He felt this way enough so that he, you know, it it made him call the police and report uh, Cujo missing. Six days after uh, Cujo's father reported um, Cujo missing to the police, Alexander's younger brother came home and made the gruesome discovery and found a human head and two human hands in metal pans that were in the basement. I know he had to been like, I know I'm not seeing what the fuck I think I am thinking. I can't imagine. So, yeah, you heard me right. It, it freaked him out and he asked Alexander about it. He asked his brother about it. Alexander was like, oh, you know, it's just a fox that I caught and I tried to cook it. What? Think about that. Even if that was true, what the fuck? I mean, I would have been like, what did you just say? First of all, who eats fox? Second of all, that's some Jeffrey Dahmer shit. Third, what? So Alexander's brother told his father what Alexander told him and what he had seen with his own eyes. But when Alexander's father came home and checked the basement, Alexander had already taken everything out of the basement and he had washed the pans, you know, that held, you know, a head and some hands. He had washed the pans out, which was weird too. Anyway, Alexander's brother, he was like, he was not satisfied. He was not having it. He was just like, you know what? I can't, I can't, I can't deal with that. He could not erase what he had seen with his own eyes in the basement and he was the one who decided to call the police. So he called the cops himself and he told them what he had seen in their basement. When the police showed up and took a look around the property in the backyard, they did find a metal cage and uh, a plastic tub that had like a dead and decomposing animal in it. And something still ain't sit right with them. I mean, especially in 2000 and you know, when this occurred, this is like, you know, it's like I said, some Jeffrey, you know, dead animals and stuff like that. Who's keeping dead animals? So they decided to bring Alexander in, you know, for some questions. And that's when Alexander admitted to them that he had hit Cujo multiple times in the head and jaw with an axe before slicing Cujo open with a knife. Alexander calmly explained to the detectives that he thought that a reptilian he thought that reptilian aliens were about to invade planet Earth and destroy humankind. And for this reason, 
After he beat Cujo to death and dismembered him, he wrapped Cujo's body parts into a trash bag. But Alexander decided to eat Cujo's heart and part of his brain. Jesus Christ. I mean, ugh. I mean, wow. Alexander told the detectives that he actually ate part of Cujo's remains and some type of sadistic spiritual ritual. Then Alexander told the detectives that he could find the rest of Cujo's remains in a dumpster in the parking lot of the Town Baptist Church in the 500 block of Trimble Road in Harford County. I mean, seriously, a church? This church was literally just a mile away from Alexander's family home. Sheesh, can you imagine being a detective and hearing something like that? Arrested and charged with first-degree murder, first- and second-degree assault, Alexander was held without bail. But let me tell you something. You cannot go around sautéing, frying, and boiling, and cooking niggas in Baltimore City. That's the quick... And, and then talk about it and say it to detectives. It That's the quickest way to get you a mental evaluation. Seriously, and three months after Alexander admitted to killing and eating Cujo, after a court-ordered psychiatric evaluation, Alexander was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and quickly found incompetent to stand trial. You know, maybe this was a diagnosis that his family could have received, you know, earlier if they would have just, you know, acted on the signs that Alexander clearly was showing. Now, with paranoid schizophrenia, which affects about 1.1% of the population, a person can experience hearing or seeing voices and delusions that's that's not real. Or you can have weird or unusual thoughts like beliefs or ideas that not normal people have. And it can drive you to make you start doing committing acts and stuff that you normally wouldn't do. Like jumping off of bridges and stuff like that. Although Alexander never showed remorse or gave up a real solid motive for killing Cujo. He did plead guilty to killing uh, Cujo for like absolutely no real reason. And he pled guilty to beating his form. Also, he also pled guilty to beating his former friend, half to death. And he was found um, not criminally responsible for any for that one too. And he was sentenced indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins Forensic State Hospital for treatment. Alexander's former friend, the one that he beat with the bat. He ended up suing Morgan State University, basically, and he based his lawsuit on the fact that Morgan State should have done more to protect him from an obviously mentally ill student who probably never should have been on campus in the first place. Morgan State University agreed, and they settled the case for 185000 and the university, uh, they created a position, basically a new position called uh, the chief of public safety um, after this particular murder to try to tighten up security and safety at Morgan State University. Now, 
ain't even gotta all. I ain't even gotta go a lot in the detail about why this. I I definitely had to choose this case as one of the most notorious murder cases in um you know Maryland's history, especially with a mental illness aspect to it. This case received national attention. It put schizophrenia directly on 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 the map and um the warning signs of mental illness i mean this dude was obviously mentally ill this wasn't i mean even though he was pursuing an electrical engineering degree like i said he wasn't stupid so high iq the whole nine i mean um in the military stuff like that but he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia um and ugh, the the voices, the delusions, I can't even imagine what that would be like for somebody that's like that. Um, is that treatable? Um, what happens when you stop taking medication? Um, and what also made this case stand out so much was, like I said in the beginning, most cannibal killers are usually white. This one was black. Um, and I guess this goes to show that um, black cannibals do exist. As far as I know, he was one of the rare ones in Maryland. I had to do some more research to find out if there were other uh, African-American black cannibal killers in Maryland. That would be something to research. And that would be something like only, <laughs> only, only I would be doing something like that in my spare time just Googling or any other... Cannibal black killer was in Maryland. <laughs> um, I also agree in um, what I stated earlier is that, come on now, when you have somebody in your family who's uh, clearly showing signs of mental illness and something, you can tell that they're not just faking. When they're talking about, like, there's some spiritual medium and, you know, they're collecting dead animals in the yard and doing that Jeffrey Dahmer shit. Seriously? As, as a family member, it's your job to to try to convince that person to get some help or, you know, get a court order if you have to to get them committed because before they either harm themselves or somebody else, you know, especially ones, the ones that have kids and stuff like that. When they're showing clear signs that something is off, you know, step up, try to do something. I mean, jeez. Um, I wonder... Speaking of schizophrenia, I wonder if um, this is a disease that is that can be caused by outside sources. Like, can drugs cause you to have schizophrenia? Um, are you born with it? Is it hereditary? I had to do some more research on it because um, is that something that's just developed over time? What is the treatment for me? Well, I mean, are there side effects to the medication? Is that why people don't like the medications or what? It's just, um, does people do, are there people that suffer from schizophrenia? Are they all violent? Do they all hear voices that are violent? These are questions that, you know, maybe I should do some more some, some further research on, but you cannot be from the state of Maryland, especially not from the city of Baltimore and not remember this case where the Morgan State University African-American cannibal killer, if you don't know this particular homicide, 
Wow, I mean, you really have been living under a rock. But, um, especially if you never heard of it. But, uh, that was exactly why this, uh, I chose this case was definitely going to make the list. I know if, you know, my listeners that are listening, that are dedicated and listening to this podcast faithfully, and you know that the season is about mentally ill uh, killers, you had to have been saying, oh, yeah, this one is definitely included in that one. <laughs> Honestly. So that's why I chose this one as one of Maryland's most notorious murders. Is definitely the cannibal killer of Alexander Kenyua. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now it's time to move on to this week's Unsolved Homicide. And like I say in every single episode, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides in Maryland that were noteworthy, that may have received a fair amount of press and attention, This podcast also shines a light on the many homicides that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention or press, if any, attention or any type of media at all. These killings are so common in the state that they don't really always make the news. They don't make Murder, Inc. They don't make Fox 45 or nothing or even when they do somebody speak about it for maybe a day or two and it gets overshadowed by another homicide sometimes when a person gets killed in this state you don't hear like nothing else about it other than just that they were murdered you might see something about it i can't even say in the paper no more but on social media and that's it it gets buried with other homicides and the number of homicides that are we see that are unsolved in this state is completely, completely unbelievable. Um, Homicide detectives, they can't do it all by themselves, especially when they are outnumbered and they're kept busy by so many homicides. And what happens to the cases where nobody is talking at all, where there's no evidence, there's no witnesses, the cases where because of the victim's past, nobody is talking, or detectives, they're not really, it just seems like they're not really investigating, they're not putting two and two together, you know, they kind of not really, you feel like, you know, the detectives are not really getting involved because maybe the victim was, you know, they had a past where they sold drugs, or they did this or whatever, you know, what happened to these type of homicides, like these type of cases where it just not a lot is really done, you know, Does it seem like, you know, the killer just simply got away with it? You know, it just, will they ever receive quote unquote justice? Um, it it just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides, not because nobody cares anymore, but because the public simply just forgot all about them. I bet you the friends and family didn't forget about it, but... It's like we have become 
immune to homicides in the state of Maryland. Seriously. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you live in Baltimore City, Baltimore County. We just become immune to it because it's so many. And instead of just these type of cases just being, you know, thrown away, you know, to the wayside um, on this podcast... Although I do talk a lot about cases where, you know, they did receive a lot of attention and notoriety. Like I said, on the flip side, a focus is also given to homicide cases that did not receive the attention and the press that they deserved. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 22-year-old Daniel Hole Covertson. Daniel had just received eye surgery for a detached retina and he was home at his apartment in the 7,000 block of Lackland Circle in Towson, resting his eyes, laying face down on his bed, minding his business, when somebody came in his apartment and shot him in the back of the head only in Baltimore because of Daniel's recent eye surgery he had left his front door unlocked so that his friends could come in and check on him from time to time and when one of his friends walked through Daniel's unlocked front door a little before 3 p.m. on Saturday February the 14th 2009 which is Valentine's Day um when they went when he went to check on him he found Daniel bleeding and not responding to his voice. The police were called, and when they showed up, Daniel was pronounced dead at the scene. Daniel, who had been born in South Korea and adopted by his parents in the United States, had been planning his graduation from Towson University with his bachelor's degree, which was only two days away before he was murdered. Daniel's sister released a statement to the Baltimore Sun that read, Losing my younger brother Daniel the way we did has been the most traumatic and painful experience of my life. Daniel was caring, funny, and generous. I miss his smile every day. He didn't do nothing to nobody. He didn't do nothing but try to make ends meet. Now, in this particular case... The only clue that the Baltimore County detectives have in this case is that Daniel received a call from a payphone which was close to the Alameda Shopping Center near Lock Raven Boulevard and Belvedere Avenue that may have come from the person or people who came into his apartment and killed him. The the detectives also think that Daniel may have been selling small amounts of uh, weed every now and then. And they think that this may have something to do with Daniel being murdered. Either way, this case is still unsolved, and at first the reward for any information in Daniel's murder leading to an arrest or conviction was only $2,000, but in 2016, the reward was increased to $15,000 for any information that could lead to an arrest or conviction. So if you have any information at all, That's regarding the murder of 22-year-old Daniel Carpenter. Baltimore County detectives want to hear from you. 
and you can reach them at 410-307-2020 or you can reach them at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Once again, those two numbers are you can reach Baltimore County Detectives at 410-307-2020. Or you can reach Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Now, remember y'all, there is a $15,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest or conviction for this unsolved homicide. And you can remain anonymous. I know there's plenty of y'all out there that need 15 grand, so like I say, ain't nothing wrong with that. Remain anonymous, do the right thing, and bring some justice to a case that's been, you know, unsolved for a long time now. I mean, come on now, 2009, bring some justice to the family. So, do the right thing and contact uh, Baltimore County Detectives. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-raising, eye-popping episodes. For paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I do what I do, how and why I got into true crime, the true crime books, the podcast, why I decided to uh, basically dedicate uh, or start a podcast on true crime. A lot of people think I just woke up one day with a gimmick and just said, you know, I'm just going to do this one day, but nope, this is something I've been doing for um, a minute or something that I've been passionate about for a minute. And there's also a real therapeutic message to this whole world of madness that I live in. I I do promise you that it is a a method to all this. Just click on the past episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, and you'll understand more about why I'm so much into true crime. I also want to let my listeners know that for season one, which uh, that was the child murders uh, season, uh, that one of the, well, six episodes have been chosen for the season, but I've now, I was just recently informed that one of the episodes, um, the the first episode uh, that will be part of a video production will be the very first Doc, the very first episode that was produced by um, this podcast. So basically what I'm saying is um, the very first documentary that will be produced by Savage Life Productions will be based off of the very first episode that was featured on this podcast. And six episodes um, from this podcast will have been selected for a video production. And this to be aired on, uh, you know, either Roku, uh, or Tubi, or, um, I will keep my, um, keep my listeners, uh, informed on the other avenues where you can download the videos, but you have to tune in to, um, <laughs> you got to tune in because the video version will be coming to you soon, like later this year. And I'm going to let you know how you can download it and how you'll be able to see it. And while you're at it, check out the new website uh maryland's most notorious murders.com and maryland is spelled uh mds it's where you can access episodes one through six you can also find links to all of the books that are related to this podcast 
which are entitled uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. You can also find links to my local bestsellers, which are uh, Junkie H.P. Baltimore Story, uh, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Child of Baltimore. Um, if you don't want to go through Amazon to get these books, you can also leave me a message on my website and I'll make sure you get a copy. You can also check me out on the latest season of Payback, which airs on the TV One network. And you can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for uh, Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, uh, Josephine Gray, who was also profiled um, on this uh, podcast. And if you really feel like doing some digging, you can catch me on TV One's Justice By Any Means. Um, you can catch me on TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina killer, Peter Moses. And you can also find me hosting Killer Kids for the Element Network. Once the Season 1 documentary videos are available, you will also be able to find the links to the videos here at uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. So be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile, another, basically another hot pop profile uh, homicide that has a mental illness uh, defense. It will be profiled. It will be examined and is also the season finale for this particular uh, theme, which is the mental illness theme. That is the season finale, which will be profiled for the next episode. Um, it will be discussed. It will be examined. And like I said, season finale next week. And trust me, you're going to want to tune in because this one is very notorious and it's one that received national attention and it will be examined and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. So be sure to tune in next week. And this has been a Savage Life production. <laughs>